Good morning, everyone. My name is Allison Pinches, and I'm one of the pastoral staff here at Courtright. And it is good to be together apart as we are today. We are in the middle of a sermon series on suffering, and Pastor Alex has led us through these last two weeks, considering the stories of Job and then Jacob wrestling with God. And I'm going to begin today with a confession. I don't really want to talk about suffering. When I was a kid, I listened to a Christian radio drama program for kids called Adventures in Odyssey. They had this one episode called Count It All Joy. It was based on James 1, 2, 1 verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. At the time of hearing this, I promptly chose this as my favorite verse, and I used to write Count It All Joy, or even C-I-A-J, all over my notebooks. But these days, it's not my favorite verse, and it actually kind of bothers me. And suffering and I are no longer friends. I'm mad at suffering, and I'm not really speaking to suffering these days, but suffering keeps requesting to be friends on Facebook, and I just won't accept the friend request. There have been times in my life when it's been really challenging for one reason or another, but I've had such a sense of how my faith was growing and knew that I was being changed in important ways so I could appreciate the gifts that come with suffering. That's not the story I'm in right now. Jordan and I are five years into an agonizing journey trying to grow our family. And it's not that my suffering is so vast or so unique. It's just that I'm in one of those, I don't really see the point of this. I don't like this. And why does it have to be this way stories? And like everyone in a season like that, the hard part is I just don't know how it's going to end or if it's going to end. I'm a storyteller. I love a good story. And some of you know that in my other job, I work as a researcher for a CBC radio show. And my role there is to help track down and shape compelling stories. I love telling stories. And I have shared with God many ending ideas for my story. Brilliant endings, poetic endings, bargaining endings that promise to give him the glory. But so far, he hasn't taken me up on any of my ideas. So I'm left in my story, not knowing if it's done or if there's more to come. And I'm annoyed. There are lots of emotions, sad, angry, confused. But for today, I think I'm going to go with annoyed. And as I sit before you today, I am truly humbled because so many of you are so much better at suffering than I am. And I have a lot to learn. Probably the first thing I need to learn from you is that instead of being like a pesky person to be avoided, it's likely suffering is a friend for life. So I should just get on with it and accept suffering as a long companion for the journey. So where do we go today with suffering? As I've shared a couple times recently in some of the devotionals, I think that sometimes in challenging times, it can be good for us to go back to the basics, to return to passages that have shaped us, where we have learned the truth about who God is and who we are in light of that. So today we turn to one of my favorite passages. I've loved this passage for over a decade and it has been really formative for me. I just don't think I realized it was about suffering. It might even be some of Jesus' best teaching on suffering. So our text for today comes from Matthew's Gospel. That is Matthew's story about the life of Jesus. And it's from chapter 5, a section commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. Let's pray as we read from God's Word together. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I thank you that you welcome us here today from wherever we are coming from, with whatever is on our minds, whatever our struggle is, and that you have good news for us. I pray that you would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear the good news that you have for us today. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So if you have your Bible, would you read with me from Matthew 5, 1 to 12. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. So broadly speaking, there are three kinds of suffering. Sometimes we suffer because of bad choices or mistakes that we make, or in other words, we suffer because of our own sin. And sometimes we suffer at the hands of other people because of their sin and the terrible choices they inflict on us. And then there's this other giant category where we put all the other seemingly random or unexplainable things. Into this category, we put cancer and COVID, natural disasters, and so on. And there's really not a reason or an explanation for this suffering, other than we live in a broken world that is living out the consequences of sin. And this side of heaven, things are often not as they should be. In the first week in our series on suffering, Pastor Alex reminded us that suffering is not what God intended. It's not what he had in mind for us. It wasn't how he set things up from the beginning. Suffering in all three of these categories is a result of independence, sin, and death entering the world. It doesn't really matter how we came to suffer, whether it was our own fault or someone else or just something that's unexplainable. It's like there's a train that all human beings get to ride called the experience of suffering. And it doesn't matter how much or little your suffering is compared to others. Suffering is our ticket to get on board this train with all other humans in this shared experience. And along with sharing in the human experience of suffering, we are offered an invitation in our suffering, an invitation as to how we will live in the midst of it. No matter what our suffering, no matter how we got on board, the Beatitudes gives us a way to live in the midst of suffering. Beatitudes are the name the church has given to those blessed are the statements that we just read. And if you thought they were strange already, apparently beatitude means super blessed. So how do these blessed are statements invite us to live in our suffering? Well, all suffering reminds us that we 
are out of control. Likely, if we could control our situation, we would, and then we wouldn't be suffering. But suffering reminds us we are not in control. And there is nothing like being reminded we are not in control to remind us of our dependence on God. And that is where we will start in the Beatitudes. So as we explore the Beatitudes further today, I want to suggest that they offer us three things. A way to live in our suffering, help now as we suffer, and hope to come. So a few things for us to keep in mind as we dive in. The Beatitudes are basically Jesus' way of describing what a kingdom person looks like. He's describing what a person who is living in line with Jesus' kingdom and way of life is like. They are not a to-do list or something to just put on. Rather, they are a description of people who are walking in sync with Jesus and his kingdom. The Beatitudes are not listing eight different people, but rather describing eight different qualities of kingdom people. Last week, Pastor Alex reminded us through the story of Jacob that God is pursuing us and He asked us, how will we wake up to God drawing us to himself? These beatitudes are the evidence that we have woken up to God and that the kingdom has taken a hold of us, that we are living in line with God. If we break these beatitude statements down, there are basically three components. The pronouncement of blessing, which is the blessed are at the beginning, then the description or an attribute of a kind of person, And finally, the promise or consequence of what will be for that person. So, pronouncement of blessing, the description, and the promise. We're going to work through these three, but we're going to do it inside out, beginning with the descriptions. Some of you may know that I spoke on the Beatitudes before and took two weeks to go through the eight phrases, and that was not nearly enough time. So there is so much that could be said about these descriptions about kingdom people. And one of our small groups knows this really well because they were studying this for months. As we consider the Beatitudes in light of suffering, we are going to simplify the descriptions of kingdom people to this. First and foremost, the Beatitudes describe people who are so aware of their need for God. They know they can't do it on their own. They have reached the end of their own strength. They see their limits and all they can do is throw their hands up and trust God. Remembering their need and dependence on God, that is what it means to be poor in spirit. And if we don't remember this one, none of the rest matter. There's a reason that this one is first. It lays the foundation for all of the others. Blessed are those who are so aware of their need for me, who know they are not in control and know they need my help, Jesus says. And if that is how you are feeling this morning, I have good news for you. You may not feel like it, but Jesus says you are blessed. You are in the right place. He is much more concerned with those of us that think we can handle it if we just work a bit harder. The Beatitudes describe people who look at the world and see the gap between what is and what should be. The rest of the Beatitudes might be summarized by saying that they are people who know that things are not as they should be, who see the way that they or this world are not aligned with God and his kingdom and who work to see that alignment restored. It's like if your car kept pulling to the right as you were driving and you knew it was supposed to go straight, you would take it to a mechanic for them to realign the car so that the car would go straight and the way it was meant to go. 
These other Beatitudes describe people who can look at the world and themselves and see, no, this is not how it's meant to be. This doesn't line up with what God is like and how he intended for people to live and relate to one another. And they work to make those changes to get that car realigned. Some of us are particularly gifted with a sense of knowing how things could or ought to be. And we struggle when we constantly see our world, our friends, our church community, and ourselves fall short. I've spoken with a couple of you about this, and it can be a lonely place to be sometimes when you feel like others can't see the gap that you see. It can be painful to live in that tension. But Jesus says, you are blessed. And some of us are crying out in our suffering and pain, saying, no, this is not how it's meant to be. And we are right. It's not. And Jesus says, you're blessed when you see this. As I was writing this sermon this week, I got news that a former colleague of mine from InterVarsity passed away. His wife shared these words about his death. The kids felt it was peaceful, and the nurse confirmed that it was a good death. But let's not be fooled. Death is a conquered enemy. There is nothing good about it. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are people who see the gap between what is and what's meant to be. That's mourning. Our mourning is our cries that say, no, this is not how it's meant to be. People who mourn are pure in heart and hunger and thirst for right relatedness. They see the difference between the glory of the kingdom and the reality of our world. Beyond seeing the gaps, beatitude people, kingdom people, take action to close that gap, to bring the world of what is a little closer to what should be, what was intended. And when that gap closes, even just a fraction, that is where the kingdom is coming on earth as it is in heaven. People who say it's not right that our First Nations communities don't have enough protective equipment and then sew masks to send to these communities. Nurses who say people shouldn't die alone and bring in an iPad so that they can have contact with their family in their final hours. It's one of you calling me this week and saying, I just did a whole bunch of baking and I've got time. Who might be glad of some food? Restaurants in our city that say we can't be open, but we have people willing to work and food to share and make hundreds of meals for people in our own city who are in need. All of these are examples of people who see something and say that is not how it's meant to be and work even in some seemingly small corner to bring right alignment to restore things to the way God intended for us. These are the merciful, the meek, and the peacemakers. So why blessed? We talk about being blessed when things are going well. I'm blessed with, and then we name the things we have, this job, this home, this car, these kids. That is not this kind of blessing. The word for blessed in Greek, makarios, means fortunate or well-off. But how does that fit here? Fortunate are those who are meek? Really? Well-off are those who are persecuted? What is this? It doesn't feel blessed when you are throwing your hands up in despair or grieving over an untimely death. 
Makarios sometimes gets translated as happy, but I would argue that's a terrible translation. You see, Makarios actually has nothing to do with how you feel or what you think about your situation. Rather, it's God's declaration about what he thinks about you in your situation. And the best translations I've heard are right on, in sync, in alignment. You are right where you are meant to be. And even you lucky bums, right on are the poor in spirit. In sync are those who mourn. In alignment are the meek and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are right where they are meant to be. It doesn't really matter how we feel about our situation or not. God is declaring that we are blessed. We are right on and in sync. So why does God declare us blessed in these challenging descriptions? Well, first of all, there's a reorientation that happens. When we realize in our suffering that we are not apart from God, but that he actually says you are in alignment, you are in sync with him, Let me be clear, our situation may not be in alignment with God's kingdom, but our posture in the suffering can be. So how are we blessed? Well, first of all, we are simply blessed because he says so. We may not understand it all, but that's what Jesus says. And so we can trust that somehow this will be worked out for good. In my neighborhood group this week, we were talking about struggle, and Evan Versteeg, who studies biology, shared that there is this principle in biology that says that organisms actually do best with mild stress. There's this optimum level of stress under which organisms actually thrive. It's like with my houseplants. I recently replanted some of them, and what I should do is limit the water I'm giving them because this actually helps them to establish more roots. They grow stronger, longer roots if they are extending out in search for water. If I keep making it too easy for them, they don't grow those long roots. What's best for them is this mild stress in the form of a little less water, and they actually will do better. Evan said there's a term for this, the intermediate disturbance hypothesis. And you see it in all kinds of systems in nature, where some stress is actually good for plants, animals, and organisms. It's like how a forest fire can actually provide fuel and nutrients for new growth that would not otherwise be possible. So it seems that we might actually be wired for some adversity as well. Perhaps it's not such a coincidence that we grow more under pressure. The rest of our natural world does too. Or think about how boring our favorite superhero movies would be if there was no adversity. I don't imagine we would sit through the two and a half hour marathon that is a Marvel movie to watch Ant-Man have coffee with the Hulk. And we wouldn't pay a lot to see Iron Man and Wonder Woman walk their dogs through the park together. They only become heroes because of the adversity they face. I don't know about you, but this is requiring a paradigm shift for me. I like to think of comfortable and stress-free as the default and anything else a deviation away from what should be. But this reframes that to say perhaps we should accept struggle as the default and anything else is a bonus. If you've been on a Zoom call with me recently, chances are I've been holding this rock. Early on in the pandemic, Zoe and Jordan put some rocks into a rock polisher. Okay, talk about adversary, adversity. That thing clanged and tumbled rocks in our garage against each other for like six days. 
but it came out nice and smooth and shiny so it's nice to hold so what's been strange is that i've found myself without realizing it squeezing and pushing and rubbing this rock so hard it's like i want it to turn to clay or silly putty in my hands but just an update as of this recording it's still a rock and not clay rock one allison zero a few days in i thought what's up with me and this rock why do i keep pressing my hands almost to the point of hurting trying to squeeze this rock and i realized as i was writing this sermon and probably pressing this rock that i think it's like my relationship with suffering suffering feels hard and solid and i keep pressing on it hoping it will turn into something else that it will melt or succumb to my resistance but what is actually happening is my hand is getting stronger so there may be some calluses too but instead of molding the rock like I'm trying to, it's molding me. Just like I keep trying to change my suffering to mold it, control it, dominate it, compel it, but probably I'm the one who's actually being shaped. I called and emailed this week with my 97-year-old grandpa. He is wise in many things, and I wanted to ask him about suffering. I still have more questions than answers, but I wanted to share what he said about joy. He wrote, joy as a deep, redemptive emotion only comes through suffering as a mother experiences at childbirth or we all experience in our afflictions. Whereas happiness is a shallow, ephemeral emotion, joy is transformative of our lives. Blessed, right on, in sync, you lucky bums. It's still a mystery to me, but somehow joy is the fruit of suffering. Along with the growth that happens in us in the midst of our suffering, during this series and our talkback discussions and neighborhood groups, some of us have been considering how suffering makes space for us to care for others in their suffering. It's true that when we are going through something, it can be a huge gift to have others relate who have suffered in the same way. It can also be beautifully redemptive for us who have suffered through something to come alongside those who are also experiencing it. In our struggles with fertility, I am so grateful for a couple people in my life that have been through that too. There is something about having somebody get it and understand the depth of our pain. I have a cousin who I grew up very close to, and she also struggled for many years with infertility. And she is the one I call in my ugly crying moments. You know those moments when it's so raw and so painful. She is the one I have called and I just sob with because I know she gets it. But I want to encourage us that we are not limited to caring only for people that have experienced what we have experienced. Two of my friends that have walked the closest with me in this journey have not experienced what I'm going through at all. In fact, between those two friends, there are nine kids in those two families. But these friends, as well as a few precious others from our church, though having limited personal experiences with the same struggles, have chosen to make my struggles their own, to journey with me in the pain to learn about fertility clinics and treatments and cycles and so on so that they can accompany me. And I can't describe 
the gift that it's been, that they have chosen my pain as their own and walked with me. We are not limited to only caring for others just like us. And we can do that for each other because we all know what suffering is. My suffering may be different than yours, but we have all experienced loss of some sort and know what it means to grieve. And we can share in these experiences of what it means to be human together. I recently heard this story about Ronald Reagan. Just nine weeks after becoming president, there was an assassination attempt on Reagan's life with six bullets fired, one an inch from his heart. Mother Teresa visited the White House a couple of months later and told Reagan, you have suffered the passion of the cross and received grace. There is a purpose to this. Because of your suffering and pain, you will now understand the pain and suffering of the world. This has happened to you at this time because your country and the world needs you. We can suffer with one another because Jesus does this for us. The consistent message from the first page of the Bible to the last is, I am with you. I am with you always. I will never leave you or forsake you. In our journey, when we have cried out to God and when others have cried out to God on our behalf, the most consistent message we hear again and again and again and again is one of presence. God is with you. It feels crappy and he is with you. It's agony and he's right there. Your heart is breaking and he's so near. And more than being a stoic observer to our pain, God knows our pain and truly gets our suffering. He is grieved at the way things are not as they should be. And in anger and judgment, he fights on our behalf for all things to be restored. So we are blessed because God says so. We are blessed because we are wired to grow in adversity. Somehow we are blessed with joy as the fruit of suffering. We are blessed to share in the suffering of others. We are blessed because Jesus is with us in our suffering. And finally, we are blessed because ours is the kingdom. The first and last of these Beatitude statements end with, for theirs is the kingdom. And this bookend statement means that it's true for all the Beatitude people, for all people who are living in line with Jesus and his kingdom. But what does theirs is the kingdom mean? Well, first of all, notice that all the other statements are will-be statements. They will be comforted. They will be filled, will be shown mercy, will see, will inherit, will be called. Why some there's is and some they will be? Well, once again, we find ourselves living in the now and not yet time. When Jesus came, he came announcing that the kingdom of God was at hand. The kingdom of God is the way God created the world and set things up, the way he intended for things to be in the beginning. This got wrecked by sin, and all of a sudden sin and suffering and death entered the world. But when Jesus came announcing the kingdom of God is at hand, he is saying that the process to restore the world to the way God intended has begun. It's started. It's like he's saying, the curve of sin is being flattened. That's what he's announcing. The curve is now flattening and God is advancing his salvation project to restore all things to the way he intended. 
all people relating to God, to themselves, to one another, and to the world in the way God meant to be. That is the good news that he's announcing. Theirs is the kingdom because we get to start experiencing the kingdom now. We know we will not experience it in its fullness this side of heaven or until Jesus comes back, but it's breaking in. It's starting to happen. And when we live as beatitude people, when we work to close the gap, we are living in sync with the kingdom and get to experience the blessedness of this kingdom way of life. So the invitation for us in our suffering is to live as beatitude people. And this is first of all for us to be poor in spirit, to know our need for God and to live in a posture of dependence on him. The second invitation is to see what is not right in this world and then to work to shift the world, if ever so slightly, towards what is right, to close that gap between what is meant to be and what is. And with every mask sewn, meal delivered, friend we sit with in their grief, we are helping to close the gap, to bring the world that is a little closer to the world that was meant to be. Back at the beginning of the Bible, we hear about this garden that God has created for his creatures where they could walk freely with God and with one another in the peace of the garden. And while there was work in the garden, there was no suffering and death. And then at the other end of our Bible, Revelation tells the story of what the kingdom in all its fullness will be like. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So at the beginning, there was no suffering. At the end, there will be no more suffering. But somehow in between, there is suffering. Why is the way from no suffering to no suffering, suffering? I don't know. But it's the way of the cross, the ultimate example we have in the Bible. We often in church hear the phrase, take up your cross and follow me, and think of the cross as a model for us to follow. And that is true. Jesus in his life and death gave us an example and a model to follow. He came not to be served, but to serve. He humbled himself. And so, yes, somehow the model we are given, the way to life is to follow our servant Savior, and that includes suffering. But what happened at the cross was so much more than giving us an example to follow. In the cross, we see the Son of God suffering for all the suffering of the world. He didn't just suffer for the wrong stuff we do. He suffered for the wrongs inflicted on us. He suffered for all the brokenness, evil thoughts, sickness, violence, disease, destruction. All of it is what he took upon himself on the cross so that it would be no more. That is good news. The cross, the suffering of the cross was actually what changed the whole world. Whatever you're going through, whatever the suffering, however you came to suffer, that is exactly what the cross is about. 
Jesus' death on the cross says no to all of those things. That's not how it's meant to be. And begins the process of restoring the world to peace and wholeness. We often ask, why would God let this happen? But we miss that that is exactly why he sent his son to die. So it wouldn't have to be that way. So that death would not be the end. And so that one day, suffering would come to an end. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for who you are. And we admit that our understanding of you and of what you accomplished on the cross is small, and we forget it often. So God, today I pray that you would expand our understanding that you would expand our understanding of what was conquered by your death on the cross, that you would grow our love and gratitude for you, and that you would invite us more deeply to live as your kingdom, as your beatitude people, to live knowing our need for you, to live as people who see the gaps in the world and who partner together with you in the work that you are doing to restore all things to yourself. And Lord, I pray that in all of this, you might help us to know joy, the fruit somehow that is suffering. Would you help us to know your joy and your peace? For we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.